This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME11. You can now access the Candid Frame on your smartphone or tablet. Whether your device runs Apple's iOS, Android, or Windows 8, you can download the free app and the latest episode will appear on your device minutes after it's released. You can also mark your favorites for repeated listening, read the show notes, and if you answer a call, the show will begin just where you left off. Download it for free from your favorite app store or click on the links that you'll find at thecandidframe.com. Hi, this is Ibarianax, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Now, having the opportunity to talk to photographers who've had a big influence on me is one of the great benefits of running this show. My education as a photographer has come largely from not classes or workshops, but instead by looking at the photographs gathered in the books that I've accumulated over the years. It's been this constant revisiting of these photographs and these photographers that have helped me to develop an eye for light, composition, and so much more. Elliot Irwin has been one of those photographers for me who I've learned so much from. As a professional commercial and editorial photographer, he has created some of the world's most memorable photographs. And whether he's photographing celebrities or dogs, his unique approach to building a photograph is always present. Though his most famous images are black and white, in his new book, Elliot Erwitt's Color, we see the world as captured through Kodachrome and Ektachrome. But whether the images are awash in color or monochrome, there is no disputing that this photographer is one of the best. Elliot, welcome to The Candid Frame. I've been a longtime fan of your your work ever since uh, uh, my college days, and I've always uh, appreciated what you bring to your photography and, uh, and my knowledge of it. I'm, I'm really thrilled to have the chance to sit down and talk to you for a bit. One of the, the, the first things I wanted to ask you about is what's always struck me about the, your, your photographs is they, they talk about photography being the art of exclu- exclusion in terms of what you don't put in a photograph, what you choose to exclude from it. But your picture seemed so much more about the relationships of those elements that you do choose to put into the frame. And I've always wondered where that sort of sensibility came from. Well, I don't know that I can make that judgment. Where does it come from? I mean, I'm interested in movies. I'm interested in Painting. I'm interested in art in general. I suppose it uh, it comes from just the general interest in in things visual. When I look at your photographs, and and you're you're known a lot for for your humor, and it always seems like it's it's oftentimes the relationships between those those elements in in the photographs that people most people wouldn't be able to pick up. But it seems like you're so adept at it. I know that you typically don't make pictures with the intent of being humorous, that it's just what you see. But early on, did you find that, that your pictures a lot of the time were about those relationships, that that's something that was drawing you repeatedly? 
Well, I would hazard to say that my pictures are not necessarily humorous. Some are, but many of them are not. I started out as a journalist, uh, not as a, well, yeah, let's put it that way. I started out as a journalist, as a photographer, uh, working for a living for people, for other people, for clients such as magazines and advertising and that sort of thing. And um, while at the same time keeping my uh, hobby, which is uh, photography as it happens, which is most convenient because it uses the same tools. And so I I would divide the work that I do in in that way, half of it or part of it for clients and the other part of it for myself, for my own amusement. And I imagine that what you're interested in is what I do for my own amusement. I don't know. Yeah, it seems like, well, the work that I've become familiar with, and I think most people have, has largely been your, your, your own personal work, which you've often referred to as snaps, though you certainly you know, produced ample work for, for advertising and for magazine articles. So much seems to be images that you produced in between those jobs or when you were just out walking the streets for your own enjoyment. Yes, and now I have a, uh, my most recent book is a color book, and it is uh, largely of uh, actual assigned work so maybe that's the thing that have you have you had a chance to take a look at it yeah yeah i, I really enjoyed looking at the book because uh it's I, a bit different than what i normally do yeah and i would heard you comment before that though you did shoot color you had more of an affinity for black and white because you saw color in some ways as being maybe a a distraction is is that correct well i wouldn't say a distraction color is more something that you do for other people uh, something that you can't control as, as well as you can control black and white. Black and white is a synthesis. It's a uh, pairing down of, uh, of things uh, to the essential, at least for me. And color is uh, more playful, more descriptive, more, uh, more for other people. You've produced um, several books over the last couple of years, um, largely black and white but was how was this experience different if if at all in terms of going through your color work and and putting together this book because there there's some images that they're very they're very similar to more famous black and white versions of your photographs which is really kind of interesting to see because it's just like a, a different moment but i was wondering that whether how the process of editing these images may have been slightly different from what you've done in your other collections well, I never intended to do this book. Uh, my uh, the designer that I work with thought that uh, there was a book in in, in my uh, color, and so and so I went through, uh, or I had my people here, my studio, go through with me about sixty years, you know, about fifty years of, of of color pictures that I never, or I I would say seldom thought too much about as a cohesive work. And uh, to my surprise, uh, I think it uh, it worked out. I mean, to my surprise, there was stuff there. I have had another uh, color book that I've done about three or four years ago, four four or five years ago, under an assumed name. Oh, really? Yeah. The name being Andre S. Solidor, as for short. And um, (laughs) that book was, it's all color, and a lot of it digital, whereas the new book, uh, none of it is digital. it's, it's all pre-digital pictures uh, going through my stuff that I hadn't thrown out, stuff that sort of piled up in my basement. The early part of your career, you, you had the opportunity to meet Edward Steichen, who provided you uh, an opportunity to work at a, at a studio. Yes, uh, my, my first 
sort of salaried job was provided to, uh, for me by Edward Steichen, who called up um, a studio uh, of Valentino Sara, who was a commercial studio, and um, they gave me a job as kind of an assistant there to, uh, you know, to be nice to uh, Steichen. And then after a couple of weeks, they got rid of me. Oh, really? I didn't realize it was that short. <laughs> yeah, but it was very instructive for me. I, I understood something rather fundamental to my uh, career. The Valentino Sara studio had one photographer, Valentino, and uh, uh, who worked about half the time. The other half, he played golf. And then uh, just a regular hired photographer and nine salespeople. And that was a great lesson. Yeah, because it seems like you, you, even though you were doing like photojournalism, that at some point you were doing like a lot of advertising work. Because at some point uh, I read that you found that the work that you were producing initially as editorial was being used for advertising or commercial purposes. And you felt like, well, I might as well get paid commercial money if it's going to be used that way. That That's absolutely true. And also I've, I've been at it for quite a long time. So I've done all kinds of work. Uh, I've even done food shots and, and architecture and uh, journalism, whatever. I would, I would describe myself as a photographer, not any not anything more specific than that. Professionally, I've done most everything in photography. And personally, I've done well, with, uh, what seems to be of interest to people. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to see how your work, whether it was commercial or whether it was editorial or photojournalism, all has the same mark on it. They, some photographers, you'll see a big difference between their you know their quote unquote commercial work and their their personal work. And with you, there doesn't seem to be any demarcation between the two. It seems like you shoot the the way that you shoot, and that's and that's it. Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, for some. Commercial work, you have, you know what the result is going to be, and, and it's just a matter of getting to the result. For personal work, you you don't have a brief, you don't have a focus group telling you what to do, or an art director with a drawing or anything. It's uh, it's quite it's quite different. Of course, when you do what you do, you try to put yourself, you know, something of yourself in it. But uh, for most of it, it of the commercial work. You're working for a client, not for yourself, and your responsibility is to uh, do something that is going to be useful for a person who pays you all that money. Yeah, when I talk to, to students, when they, they talk about you know getting commercial and advertising work, that it's I often impress trying to impress on them that it's not just about just doing what what's like sort of laid on on the paper. One of the reasons that clients are often hiring you is because they they want the goals of the assignment to be done, but they're all, all, always asking for something a little more special, something that they couldn't sort of anticipate that you could bring to the to the table. Have you found that that's really one of the reasons why so many advertisers were, were or commercial clients were drawn to you for that reason? Well, theoretically, yes, but actually not necessarily because the result has got to be something that uh, that works for, for them and that they have in mind for you to produce. Of course, if you can uh, improve on it uh, or, or give it some, some, something of, of yourself, some idea, well, that's fine. That, that's all the better. However, there are some commercial jobs that are quite spectacular in, in that there is no brief whatsoever. 
and maybe you're speaking about some of those. Notably, uh, for instance, the uh, campaign I did for Puerto Rico over 50 years ago. I was called into the office of uh, a very small agency, Ogilvy at that time, and I was uh, asked by David Ogilvy to go to Puerto Rico and just take some nice pictures. That was my brief. And that's very unusual. Um, same thing when I did the uh, campaign for France for Doyle Dan Bernback. They were also asked me to go to France and take some nice pictures without a brief. And um, that kind of uh, assignment, of course, is the ideal one. And that's where you can put your own uh, stamp on it. That was the campaign where you had that, that series of, of empty chairs at all these sort of iconic locations in Paris. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's 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 one of the uh, pictures or one of the series uh, that lasted for several years. And so there were quite a few pictures. That sort of be, it seems like a, sort of an unexpected subject matter for for a campaign like that, particularly when you're sort of promoting uh, tourism. Did did those images were did, were they just the result of things that you were responding to and making pictures of, and and they later saw how they could utilize it as part of the campaign, or was it a more yeah well, for the most part, just as you described it, yeah, for the most part. Was that sort of unusual that it would happen that way when you had you know complete license to shoot the way that that you would want that they would later look at the pictures and then they would figure out how they could utilize them. Very unusual, very unusual indeed. But that doesn't happen much anymore. It used to be, for instance, uh, I'll give you, a, <laughs> I'll give you a, uh, an example. When I went back to Puerto Rico 50 years later, this was about three years ago, to do a, a similar campaign, I had 32 people with me from the agency, from the, from the client. Uh, anyway, altogether 32 people. When I did the same kind of campaign 50 years before, it was me and my driver, uh, who was also my translator. That's the difference. And one of the things that I read you talk about the whole dynamic is that you're you're often dealing with people who are existing within sort of a, an aura of fear, fear for their jobs, fear for you know all this anxiety about things coming off. Where you come off as yeah, well, there's a lot of anxiety in the advertising world, absolutely. Not for a photographer, not well, at least not for me, because for me it's just a job, and then you go to another one or to another one. But for people who are salaried and who depend on the success of what they do, well, it's a different story. Uh, I can fail, but then I can do something else the next week. So, but how do you contend with, with the fact, particularly, you know, probably even in more recent days, where people who are propelled by that anxiety or fear want to sort of step in to sort of control things or, or, or shape things in a way that makes them feel comfortable but doesn't necessarily serve the images how do you ha how have you sort of negotiated those those egos when you, when you're there to go like you said to, to do a job what have you found has worked for you in that way well you try to do uh, what they expect of you it's as simple as that because uh, you see now i think there, there's so much writing on, on budgets and things on on uh, advertising campaigns that uh, if they don't work then the people who assign you are are held responsible for that. And, um, you know, if, if they make wrong judgments about the photographer or about the uh, the concept or something, well, it's it's their ass. Yeah. Uh, whereas for me, it's not. One of the things that you were a big proponent of was the idea of photographers retaining their, their copyright. 
Um, there was yes, a, well, that's of course uh, that's for uh, journalism, or that's for that's for the uh, sort of more serious work. Uh, you know, advertising work for the most part doesn't have a, a, an afterlife. Sometimes it does, but it not, usually it's not. Yeah, or pictures you take that I take, for instance, my uh, amateur pictures, or, or pictures that I've taken of my family, or pictures that I've taken while on jobs. Because um, luckily, I've been wonder I have wonderful jobs that take me to various parts of the world. For instance, I'm about to to start on, on such a job now. It's going to take me all around. Uh, pictures that I uh, that are taken under those conditions generally can have an afterlife. Uh, pictures that I've taken of uh, dogs, of, of, uh, of events, of uh, pictures that I took when I was uh, accredited to the White House during the Kennedy time. Uh, that kind of and, and certain kind of assignments, pictures uh, have an afterlife or can have an afterlife. Pictures of celebrities, uh, if you can keep your copyright on on those, well, then you can make more use of them. I would say that most of the pictures that are in my books are are pictures, or all of them are pictures that I own the copyright to. Because when you were when you were with uh, Magnum, I know that you had uh, these buttons. That uh, that you had that you encouraged the other photographers to wear with meeting with editors. Can you tell us about yeah. that? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah but, but copyright is sacred. It was the Latin in Latin. And you had it in Latin for an interesting reason because you 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 were hoping that the editors would ask. Yes. <laughs> what it meant. Yeah, well, that's a long time ago. I was talking about the sixties. My goodness. But you know, as of late, it seems like that the, there's a lot of sort of rights grabs that are happening currently that even though you know there's a recognition that the photographer owns the copyright at the moment he creates the photograph it seems like for uh, there's still increasingly numbers of clients that that want to own the the, the copyright that want to complete yeah, and those people you don't work for for instance vanity fair they, they practically want your dental records uh, own them <laughs> but you know they give you access some sometimes they give you access to these um, personalities, and they want to keep uh, all the residual possibilities, and they just want to control that. So you, the problem is uh, easily solved. You simply don't work for them. You work for the people that um, that aren't like that, or yeah. you, you work on your own, and then you try to peddle your pictures after you've taken them. Agencies are good for that. You're known for these this wonderful set of images that you created of your first wife and, and first daughter, like right before and soon after her birth. Yeah, and it seems like those photographs revealed a certain intimacy that kind of lives on even even through today when people take a look at those photographs. And a lot of people sort of attribute those photographs to a certain way that you you saw things. Did you, in retrospect, do do you see them as being particularly pivotal photographs, or are they just very personal photographs that seem to have resonated with a lot of people for you? Well, both. Uh, the picture that you speak of was taken in 1953. That's uh, 60 years ago. And it's put my uh, daughter, that daughter that is six days old in the picture, it's put her through college. Mm. And, uh, you know, the uh, the income from it. It's still being used as a stock photograph for illustration. If I didn't have the copyright of it, if, had I taken that picture for a magazine or for a uh, for an advertising company, and in fact it has been used in advertising campaigns over the years, I, I wouldn't own it. I wouldn't be able to sell it. Also, not only for illustrations and um, but uh, as um, through galleries as uh, sort of art pictures. 
and through exhibitions. And uh, he, yeah, as long as you keep your copyright, you you keep ownership of of, of your work. That's the ideal. Have you found that the that the photographs that have a kind of longevity, like like that photograph, have often been about like relationships between people? I mean, that is obviously a connection between a mother and a, and and a daughter. But uh, yeah, that, yeah, I think uh, good pictures have uh, have a good chance of surviving, but they have to be good pictures. And they have to, you know, they have to relate to people. They have to be accepted by people. Another way of uh, of having pictures that last a long time is uh, personalities that somehow become famous. For instance, I've had a, a few uh, sittings with Marilyn Monroe, and those pictures, <laughs> they, they're still current. Uh, and she's been dead for 50 years. Yeah, you shot on the set of The, of the Misfits with her and Clark Gable, uh, Montgomery Clift. Yeah, well, not only that, I've had other sittings with her. And, and and I've retained my uh, copyright. And um, anyway, those pictures that are of that are of interest to uh, to the public uh, have a chance of surviving and being used. Pictures of dogs. I've had eight dog books based on photographs that I've taken of dogs. Because that's an easy one. You don't have to ask permission from dogs. <laughs> did you have a dog growing up yourself, or did you always have a a, a, a love? I've for had dogs? many dogs. Yeah, and, and most recently my. My dog of 17 years has gone to heaven. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> yeah, and I, I miss him a lot, but uh, but I don't have one at the moment. I uh, I think I'd like to have Avis rent a dog or something. <laughs> I, I travel too much to have one. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why people have resonated so much with those photographs is that you kind of reveal sort of the humanness in people through these photographs of dogs. You know, well, my view of dogs is that it's they're people with more hair. <laughs> and now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor, Squarespace. Now, Squarespace is constantly improving their platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. They have these beautiful designs for you to start with and all the style options you need to create a unique website for you and your business. And it's incredibly easy to use, but if you want help, Squarespace has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. To start a trial, no credit card is required. Just start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME11 to get 10% off and to show your support for the show. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. So you, you, you've created like thousands of thousands of photographs and it's always, I, I've enjoyed the ones that you've done of dogs in sequence. Like you have this one where um, Rockefeller is, it was, I guess, running for re-election yeah. uh, in Congress and these people are grouped uh, around him, uh, listening to him speak and this sort of, this dog is sort of... Uh, you know, taking away. it in and then walks away and then urinates against the posters as, as, as if he's making a commentary. Yeah. Uh, that sequence was a favorite of uh, President Kennedy. Oh, I, I bet. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I gave him the, three, the series. Yeah. When you were covering the, 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 you know, the, the White House during the Kennedy administration, it's, it was probably a very different world than, than you had grown a, sort of accustomed to. I know that there, there aren't the level of controls that they're available now, there, there seems to have been a little more uh, access uh, to people back back then. But how did you find that 
that time for you as a, as a photographer? Oh, it was absolutely wonderful. The, the White House in those days was full of young people, and uh, it was a very exciting place to uh, to work in. And uh, the reason that I was that I had the accreditation was because of Pierre Salinger, press secretary, because we used to be a uh, photographer reporter team on, on a couple of jobs, on several jobs when he was uh, before before he became secretary. And um, by virtue of that, I was able to get accreditation to the White House and had access to uh, a lot of the people that uh, came in and out and uh, retained, uh, of course, my copyright to those pictures, which are still being used today. And he's the one who gained you that, uh, that, that, that access to that position of uh, uh, to shoot that shot of Khrushchev and uh, and Nixon uh, during the Eisenhower administration, where they had that famous kitchen yeah, that, debate. Yeah, that was in uh, Moscow. Oh, that was in Moscow. Okay. Yeah, I was in Moscow at uh, on a commercial assignment for Westinghouse refrigerators. I just happened to be there when Nixon came on a state visit, and so I, since I was there, I attached myself to the Nixon party, you might say, and. Um, Hung out with them and got that picture. Also kept the copyright. But but Nixon ended up using it for his uh, uh, during his presidential campaign in '60. Yes, with, without permission. So how did you find out about the fact that the image was being used in that way? Did someone call you? <laughs> it was, or was all over the place. <laughs> uh, I gave a copy of that uh, of, of the picture to um, he was in, in the publicity person for Macy's Kitchens, where I happened to be when I took the picture. Mm-hmm. Bill Sapphire. Oh, okay. Again, and he became uh, attached to um, the campaign of Nixon, and uh, he thought the picture would be useful for the campaign. And as he had a print of it, he used it uh, without asking me. But but anyway, the, he lost that campaign, and, and Nixon did. So that was that was okay with me. <laughs> I was wondering about your your your, your parents, particularly your father. I, I I heard that there was a story where how you came to Los Angeles that you were had gone to a, a a pool or you had been swimming, and then your dad had come to pick you up and then sort of like at the last minute he said he took you across the country and and moved you to California. Is that true? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure about the pool business, but yeah, he uh, sort of decided one day to uh, to go to Los Angeles uh, where I. Uh, where I spent my my years uh, as in high school and junior high school. Yeah, he kidnapped me. <laughs> and at one point that you were living in a house on Fountain Avenue. Uh, I used to. Hang I had out. my own house. Yes, I had yeah. my own house when I was sixteen. Yeah, just down old. the street from Lacan High School. I used to hang out in that area. Uh, You're joking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to I went to LACC. My dad had a, a print shop not too far from there. I used to. Hang. I went to LACC too. Yeah. Yeah, and Lecon and Hollywood High School, and uh, my house was on Fountain Avenue, just on the corner of uh, Bronson and Fountain. I think the house is still there. Yeah, yeah. Every so often, I'm there, and I uh, drive by to look at it. Terrible neighborhood. <laughs> but I, I was reading that that time was you were living with a bunch of other like teenagers, and that it was like a, a your first time sort of being sort of independent on your own because your dad had left to, to move somewhere else. Yeah, he left to live in New Orleans. He had problems with uh, alimony and stuff. So I inherited the house, and I had to pay for it. And so I had uh, rumors. Uh, one, of the, one of my roommates was uh, Eugene Ostroff, who later became the uh, 
curator of photography at the Smithsonian. And so what led you to go from, you know, living there to making the leap to moving to New York? I know that you started making, you know, making the runs around there, but... And New York is the center of the world and, and, and the center of photography and everything. Los Angeles is pretty dead end for me, certainly at the age of high school age and so on. So as soon as I could, I uh, went to New York to uh, to look uh, for my profession, to, to, to establish myself. And uh, was lucky enough to uh, meet Steichen and Robert Kappa and, uh, what's his name, Farm Security Administration. Channel. Oh, Roy Stryker. Roy Stryker, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, you know, he did, he 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 uh, made a very kind gesture to you uh, when you when you met him. Yes, he did indeed. Tell us uh, about that. He, I, I went to see him with the with my sort of portfolio, and he figured that I was poor and uh, struggling. I must have been all of seventeen years old at the time, and he uh, pulled out a hundred bucks from his own wallet, gave him to me as a advance cash. And then he gave me a job to take pictures of the refinery in, in uh, New Jersey, the Standard Oil Refinery in New Jersey. That was my first commercial job as a photographer. And that was a job where you, I think that you started being aware about the importance of copyright because you weren't a, you didn't retain the copyright for that job. Is that right? I think the copyright I was really became aware of it uh, when I joined Magnum because that was one of the uh, fundamental reasons for having a, an agency. So that you can control your work and distribute it through, you know, through your own agency and be responsible for it. So the uh, the ownership, the copyright business was really when I was into Magnum, and I joined Magnum at the invitation of Kappa right after I left my uh, military service, in 1953. And how important was that, that, you know, being part of that organization? Because you had Robert, you had Cornell Kappa, you had, you know, a lot of very talented, very diverse talents in in that group. Yeah, and the most important one, of course, being Henri Cartier-Bresson. Mm-hmm. It was great. I mean, that was that was that was uh, fantastic. I mean, that that was the beginning of my career. And and what did you find that you were learning most of? I mean, part of it, getting opportunities to go and shoot for editorial and, and commercial. Um, and At that commercial. time, there was no commercial. It was strictly editorial. And commercial became later and rather important because I started having kids and and, uh, and mortgages and uh, expenses and stuff. So You started getting some pushback, at least in the beginning, from some of the other members of the organization when you started taking on these advertising and and commercial jobs because they saw themselves as serving. Uh, I, I, might, I must say I probably was the least pure of the people there at the beginning. Yeah, in the in the late fifty in the fifties, doing commercial work and, and in the sixties was not considered very uh, very nice for 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 us Magnemites. But um, I always thought that I always thought that the photographic profession was not only to take uh, pictures for the wall or for magazines; it was to take pictures for clients. Yeah. That was my uh, creed, always, still is. What have you enjoyed about producing these books? Because I, I, you know, I've lost count in terms of the numbers of books that you produced over the last couple of uh, decades. But what, about thirty, thirty, thirty books. Okay. So, what do you love about you know putting these books together and and having that as a means of sharing your sharing? Your well, images? there you have total control, and all the books. The, the, this this is this is the essence of uh, of what you do. 
this is what is significant about what you do, what you do. I mean, what get, gets into books? Books are in cement, you might say. Books last. Magazines, uh, you or newspapers, you wrap fish in them after a couple of days or a couple of weeks. Um, but books uh, remain, and um, and therefore they're the most important thing that you can do, and they're the result of uh, of uh, the justification of your life or of your photographic life is is books. What what's the editing process for you when it comes to those? Because you have such a large inventory of images. So say when you when you're doing a, a book on the topic of dogs, or you're doing a, a book focusing on your images at at the beach. What's the process that you go through? Do you actually make physical prints and lay, put them up on a wall or on the floor? Um, yeah, I make uh, uh, five by seven inch prints in the dark room. And um, well, first you you edit. For instance, right now uh, my next book is going to be on women. Now I've taken pictures of women throughout my career: girlfriends, wives, uh, just strangers, uh, stories, all, all kinds of things that involve women. And that's what I'm going to be doing, going through my inventory, my contact sheets, because it'll be a black and white book, and uh, picking out pictures that are relevant to my uh, concept. I'll be making five or seven prints, and I'll get my, I'll get together with my designer who's done the last ten of my books, my designer whose name is Stuart Smith and lives in England, and he'll come over here, and uh, we'll put all these pictures on the floor, these five by sevens may come combinations and so on, and uh, eventually we'll have a book. I'll get somebody to write a foreword, or maybe I'll write it myself, and uh, we'll have a book. What have you learned about your your work and, and yourself when you sit down and actually go through the process of going through your images? Because I know for me, every time I, I sit down and I start really delving deep into it, I'm always sort of surprised, not only by some of the pictures that I took that I may not have thought were really great, but in retrospect, that they actually were pretty good photographs. But I, I sometimes see things that sort of are sort of like as connective tissue to imagery that I, I at first didn't think that there might be a relationship to. But I see that there's something there that's holding them all together. Do you do you find that that's something that happens each time you sit down to put together a book? Yeah, I've made many discoveries. For instance, one of my signature pictures, I never I never knew I had it or printed it until 25 years after I took it. And that's the picture of the uh, couple in the mirror of the car. Oh, really? Yeah, I, that was that was a discovery in, in my contacts. I've made many discoveries, maybe not all of them as important as that one. And I expect to make some more when I look. And very often in the past, I would take pictures and put them away, you know, uh, without editing them and go on to the next job and so on. And... Uh, comes a time that you look at uh, your your past uh, work and then you can find things that uh, that you didn't know were there. I mean, this happens all the time. Well, you, you're going to be in Los Angeles this week for an event at the at the Leica Gallery in association with a whiskey manufacturer. Tell me a little bit about that. It, it's going to happen. It will have happened by the time people hear this this uh, episode. But I'm, I'd be curious if you'd share a little bit about that. Well, I I, I just did a book uh, on on the uh, on Scotland. Sponsored by Macallan Whiskey. It's not about whiskey or anything like that. It's a, the book is actually about the country. It's a very nice book, I think. And uh, it's being promoted along with the uh, whiskey company all around the world. And I'm going to uh, be going to many of these cities uh, where we'll have a, um, a presentation. The first one is 
in New York next week. That's the opening one. Then there's one in Los Angeles. Then the next will be in Moscow. And after that in London, Paris, Taipei, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Singapore, and uh, Seoul. That's about it. And so this is one of those assignments where you had the complete freedom to photograph Scotland as you as you saw fit? Exactly. Um, must have been wonderful. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the book turned out quite nice. And uh, yeah, if you, you're, you're based in L.A.? Yeah, uh-huh. Why don't you go by? Yeah, I'll be coming by on Wednesday, and I'll have a chance to, 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 to see you. I and, think and it's Thursday, work. isn't it? Uh, Wednesday or Thursday, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you'll see a copy of the book. It's a funny book. It's uh, it's It's got a bottle of whiskey inside the book. Oh, does it? <laughs> but the book is not about whiskey. Well, my, my final question is one that I ask each of my guests, and I ask them to suggest or recommend another photographer. And it can be someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? Well, I would I would say that uh, there's a number of photographers that I uh, think are interesting and wonderful, and they're mostly in, in Magnum. It's, it's that kind of photographer. One of them is uh, Paolo Pellegrini. He's a very good photographer, courageous and good. Joseph Kudelka is probably the best photographer in Magnum these days. Yeah, I would say Joseph Kudelka. Are you familiar with his work? Oh, yeah, most certainly. Yeah, the, both of them are fantastic shooters. Where can people go to find out more about you and, and your work? Well, uh, you can um, you can go to Amazon and, and get my color book, which is just uh, recently out, and, and, uh, and my other books. That's That's one way. And as well as the Magnum website, I'm sure. Oh, I, I tell you, there's a website that has, uh, my archive is is now with the University of Texas, uh, the Ransom Center. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, and you can look at, uh, you can find about two, 3,000 pictures on it. Well, I'll, I'll provide a link for that on, on the website so people can and check that out. But uh, Yeah, I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure what the website is, but, but you can see all the thousands of pictures. Oh, very cool. I look, I look forward to checking that out. Well, Elliot, thank you so much for your time. I really was honored and and uh, really enjoyed having the chance to s- sit down and talk with you. Thank you so much. But uh, give me a link so I can see how silly I, I sound. Oh no, you sounded you sounded great. I really uh, enjoyed it, and uh, I look forward to, to seeing you on uh, on, on Thursday. Okie doke. As we continue to grow the show and expand our offerings here at The Candid Frame, your support is invaluable. And you can show that support in a variety of different ways. You can make small donations using PayPal. A link for that you'll find at the CandidFrame.com website, where donations of $5, $10, $20, or even more are greatly appreciated and go a long way to helping us improve the show. You can also post reviews on the iTunes web store, which help our rankings and create more awareness about the great program that we offer here. The show's editor is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. Till next time, this is Ibarian X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame.